0: to native yoga podcast so happy you are here my goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga massage body work and beyond follow us at native yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com all right let's begin Welcome to Native Yoga Podcast. I am incredibly honored, excited, and feel privileged to have the opportunity to bring Alexandria Crow to the show and to you, to your ears, and if you're watching on YouTube, to your eyes and ears. Alexandria is an incredible yoga teacher. She's been at it for a really long time. She's extremely prolific. You can practice with her via the online platforms. She is available on her website, yogaphysics.com. And I really do highly recommend that you follow her. If you're an Instagram user, her handle is Alexandria Crow yoga. She does a great job of bringing the essence of yoga to the spotlight without showing off physical asana. And, you know from this ego side but more like let's ask deep questions and let's probe in on like what is yoga and why are we practicing and how can we do it in a way that we make it accessible for everyone so um this is just a real honor and a privilege pleasure i'm so excited let's go ahead and get started i'm so excited to have this chance to speak with alexandria crow and how are you doing today alexandria
1: pretty good how are you
0: i'm doing really well thank you so much for joining me i've been looking forward to this for quite a while
1: yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. It'd be a good chat.
0: Um, and you're in Los Angeles, am I correct?
1: No, you are not. I Ooh. I was. I right. was. We'll pretend I'm still there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair no, enough. No, I'm in right Ohio now. <laughs> you're in where? Ohio. Cool. What um, prompted the move to go to the Midwest?
1: I, I, my ex. Cool. So he, he yeah. had kids, and uh, so I ended up here, and hope uh, it happened, and I ended up stuck here. So. I'm here for now, not much longer, I'm sure, but yeah.
0: Very nice. Were, were you originally from LA or did you move there at some no, point?
1: No, I'm from Toronto originally. Um, so I was raised in Canada until the middle of high school. Then I lived in Arizona for a minute and went to college there. And then San Francisco, then LA. So
0: Cool. Do you miss LA?
1: Yes, very much. Nice. I do.
0: Nice. I was just out there like, uh, two weeks ago and I hadn't been there for about 10 years and I I really loved it. It was so beautiful.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I lived in Venice. It was, um, yeah, out of all the years and all the places I've lived is my favorite place to live. Although it's changed so dramatically that Venice is not there anymore. So Mm. something to return to because it's gone.
0: I hear you. Right. Big changes. Well, I hear you. I'm, I'm a fan of your, what you do on social media. I think your posts are amazing. And I love that you're trying to keep yoga real. And, um, on that note, can you share with me what that transition was for you or what got you so fired up and passionate about, uh, attempting to stay away from just showing off fancy yoga poses and getting a little bit more into the philosophy?
1: Sure. Uh, that was actually the place I started was the philosophy component, um, because of my backgrounds, which pe- most people are usually familiar with that. I have this competitive gymnastics background, the physicality of it had an intrigue in the sense that it was familiar, but it was by no means my driving interest. Um, the philosophy part was the driving force that said I had a particular skill set that was, you know, fairly useful to people. Um, and there wasn't a huge model back then to follow along with. It was before social media really, I mean, there was only really Facebook and people were barely using that for yoga at all at that point. So, um, I didn't really have a model to follow along with, um, and just got asked to do certain things. And that seemed like the trajectory my friends had been on before and they were, you know, in the field for longer. So I kind of was like, Oh, cool. This is, you know, the way things work. And, uh, I didn't do a lot of reflection on, you know, what I was participating in or why it was one of those where you're, you know, new at something and it's, and I'm not begrudging the fact that it is kind of like an honor and a certain way to get asked to do certain things. Um, But it was by no means my driving interest. And uh, most people are fairly uh, aware that I got pretty hurt um, practicing in the way that I was told to practice. Uh, I followed all the rules. I was a diligent student. You don't get to be a a gymnast of that long without being really good at taking direction. And so uh, I was quite shocked when I got hurt and didn't even know it was from practicing until quite a bit later. Wow. Um, And that was the pivot was when I got hurt because my desire was not to hurt myself. I knew how to hurt myself doing gymnastics. You get really good at knowing what Mm. pain is. Um, Mm. And then my biggest pivot was I didn't want to hurt anybody else. And so I needed to figure out what had happened.
0: Interesting. So that I understand correctly, do you mean that while you first started getting involved in social media, you were posting a lot of pictures of you doing really advanced extreme asana.
1: yeah, I yeah. did the thing that I talk about yeah didn't all right. all the way back, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and it was like all there was back then. I didn't really understand that platform, but even when I started posting, I was talking about it was a really it was during that injury period, and a lot was going on in my life and um my practice of yoga had gone from really not being about yoga because it was so physical and um, really just perpetuating of all the patterns I had to this pivot to not being able to do any of that anymore. So I had to dive more deeply into the teachings and applying them in life and finding a technique that actually worked when I couldn't move my left leg very well. So um at that point I had stuff to say. So they're kind of those posts that then ended up taking off and becoming the status quo where it's, you know, a picture of me doing something fancy with some very meaningful copy written below it. And I would (laughs) never do that nowadays. Not that I begrudge anyone for doing it. I totally understand the motivation for doing that, but it doesn't serve the people that I want to work with. And I don't think it serves the community that, um, you know, I'm aiming to interact with at large and it's certainly fairly exclusive. So I try to stay a different direction. It's just not authentic to me at all anymore. Yeah. I actually feel yeah. weird back too. but
0: I hear you. Are, are you open to talking about what type of injury you had?
1: Oh, totally. Sure. No problem.
0: What type of injury did you have?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I have, luck. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, I have, uh, herniations at L3, four and five. Let me say this first. Mm. I'm fine now. I'm totally fine. Um, I don't do any of the things that contributed to it for. Um, that said, I can't, I'm fine to do. If you want to take me to an adult gymnastics class, I totally would. I like downhill ski. I do extreme things still all the time. I just don't exploit my hypermobility in the way that poses demand. So that aside, um, I have herniations at L3, 4, 5, uh, as well as uh, T12. Uh, I have a S curve in my neck instead of it being just one singular curve. Um, I subluxed a bunch of ribs. I subluxed my left shoulder demoing what not to do. And my joke is always turns out I'm right that you shouldn't do that pose that way because it will dislocate your shoulder. Um, and I had some hip probably labral issues, um, as well, but the nerve pain from the herniations and the um, SI dysfunction Mm. and pelvic girdle dysfunction that I, I ended up with, um, was the most painful. Um, it, wow. it was debilitating like oh. three times over. I hurt myself three times over trying to figure out what was happening. So oh
0: my gosh, yes, I can relate. And what was the predominant styler method that you were practicing prior to all that? Was it, is this in LA I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, alignment driven, like alignment specific, very alignment focused, yeah. you know, quote unquote safe, uh, Ashtanga actually. Mm -hmm. And like vinyasa to a degree, but I I had a daily Ashtanga practice at that point, but it was propped and with alignment principles. Um, So I learned a lot about this concept of alignment through that.
0: Interesting. I kind of get the feeling though, that the intensity around the alignment is part of what wasn't working for you. Did I pick up on that correctly? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, the confusion that that might cause for people. If say like, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, being an Ashtanga practitioner and then hearing that, well, Ashtanga, Ashtangis would then go to Iyengar yoga to learn how to do the yoga properly, like where you'd actually get good alignment and then it's going to work for you, you know, much better. You can avoid all these injuries. Can you explain a little bit what maybe why is someone who's newer to yoga would be, but wait, isn't alignment going to be so much better than non-alignment?
1: Right. Um, yeah, it's, the alignment style that uh, I was taught and practiced is really the predominant one that people teach and practice these days. It's like the status quo at this point around the world. Um, and those alignment cues are what all my work is focused off of and, and changing at this point, because what they assume is a very specific body type and ability Um, And they're mechanically unsound in terms of how some things actually work on a physiological level. But on top of that, they just really assume this one size fits all body uh, that has a very similar set of proportions, skeletally, a very similar skeletal makeup and a very similar range of motion and ability in terms of range of motion um, or ability to gain such range of motion. And So it self-selects out for this really specific population of people who, on the external from the external standpoint, might not look the same, but on a deeper look, they have a lot of these similar traits. Mm. Um, And the issue that ends up happening is people like me who can take those alignment cues in and do them because of this component called hypermobility Um, it's a major contributing factor because we can do that we can kind of manipulate our joints to do all kinds of things that they're not really supposed to do Mm -hmm. so the poses will look really beautiful you know from the outside but what's happening in the joints on the inside is completely inorganic and manufactured and your body doesn't like that your nervous system doesn't like that at all Um, so cumulatively it ends up in a probably pretty bad place Um, And you end up also tuning out from your intuition and your internal sensory system that tells you, you know, what's right for you and what's wrong for you and allows you to explore and test things to find the appropriate answer for yourself. Um, you override that with these principles that are deemed safe. Mm. And that's a big buy-in for people, right? Like they want to stay safe. So yeah. you buy in and override the system that's trying to alert you constantly that something's wrong. It's kind of a whisper for a while, and then it's a shout, and then it's a, you know, smack because you <laughs> won't stop.
0: <laughs> yeah. Great point. When you, can you think back to the first time that say you looked at a book like, I'm just going to pick one that caught my attention early on, say light on yoga. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, see these pictures of Mr. doing these really amazing positions. And, um, you know, I was just fascinated by that. Like, to me, it looked like if I could just follow that, I would, as I get older, I just will somehow avoid all pain, suffering. And that, that was like going to be the answer. Can you remember the, like that, first fascination you had with looking at yoga poses and, and what your first kind of intuition was about it?
1: It actually, I didn't have a fascination with the imagery like that. Um, because mm. of my background, a lot of what I saw was actually, you know, stuff that I could replicate pretty quickly. Wow. Um, and actually, funnily enough, that particular book, it was of course, part of original teacher training I took as well. And we were told not to look at it in terms of alignment or position because we're taught that it was actually like outdated in this and there was this new way to align things that was you know smarter and more safe and you know that turns out not to inherently be true at all but um so i kind of have a funny relationship with the imagery but i can remember really clearly always having this fascination with something that was alternative to the spiritual system i was raised in yeah and i was really drawn to that there was this um rebellious nature to it it was so intriguing because it sounded so much more up my alley in terms of how i saw the world and i figured like oh if i could figure out that and unlock that then that'll be the thing and the commonality i have to what you were saying is that was come by, by way of poses. Right. Mm, So I thought, Oh, those deeper like spiritual components, if I do the poses the way that these authority figures are saying to do them, I'm going to make my way to this state of ease. That's going to eliminate this, you know, chronic anxiety and things like that, that I, you know, used to really, really suffer with. So, um, yeah, I can relate to it that way for sure. Where it's like, oh, this is the panacea of answers through these poses.
0: Yes. And would you say that that that's not true? <laughs> it's not that simple. <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> not through the technique, of, um, uh, yeah. you know, applied. Yeah, I, I am a huge believer in if it works for you. I don't believe that yoga's philosophy and teaching square with everybody's mentality. I I yeah. think that that is to be really dogmatic. Um, and other religions and spiritual systems have proven time and time again that it's not one size fits all. And when you try to make it such, it's really detrimental. But um if it does square with you, the worldview um and and vantage point of the self and the larger construct of the the world and the manifest world, it does have a lot of like liberating and freedom components to it that can bring a lot of ease and a lot of assurance um and give you kind of a roadmap for how to live. But I don't think that that you get there as often. I'm not gonna negate that some people don't get there through the, you know. Alignment model, sure. I'm yep, sure that's possible. Yep, yep. But by and large, I think that it's actually a hindrance and makes the path a lot longer.
0: Interesting. I hear you. What was the text that you initially got intrigued about the yoga philosophy from, or or in
1: the, the original one that I was like a deep dive in? So it's you know the one that most people, if they take a deep dive, go in the West. It's, it's the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Um, and then I was reading all kinds of stuff you know that was all eastern centric like every single um you know new age and eastern they're they're different, but I was reading like a lot of that kind of thing and commentary on those kinds of texts um and so yeah, the sutras was the first one. I'm by yeah, no mi- yeah. means a sutras enthusiast like that anymore,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, I think that it is much more applicable, but um I started I started in that in that sutras place for sure,
0: nice. What's something now that you've had a few years to study it, read it, apply it, think about it, probably be, maybe even challenge it. What, what are you pulling the most from it these days that you feel is really, uh, applicable to our current yoga world?
1: So I think that the, Sutras do an excellent job of explaining in a concise way human nature in terms of pattern repetition and the reasoning behind pattern repetition. Mm. And it does so through the explanation of the kleshas, right? So uh, you have this forgetting, essentially, you forget the nature of who you are and the true nature of things subsequently derive an ego which we all have and it is the fundamental components interacting here so it's not all a problem but uh the parts of that ego that are out of balance or are magnetized will attract towards it that which perpetuates that imbalance and repel the things that you know, challenge it or that change it. And you do so because of the fear of death. And that's essentially an explanation long ago of the, you know, addictive patterning that we're all involved in in one way or the other. So I think that that's really powerful stuff. And especially to know that, you know, I always look at it from a meta analysis sort of standpoint is that explanation shows up in so many different systems that this is our problem. This is what creates, this is our affliction, And if you see it in so many different places, I always think, oh, there's something there that that comes Mm -hmm. through, not just the system, but tons of other areas of study. So uh, I think it has a a ton of relevance and it's oftentimes like really overlooked in favor of the eight limbs.
0: Yeah. Great point. Is there something that you did today that made you think this is a pattern that I I keep repeating? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I did. I, we all do, right? Yeah. To, yes. I mean, that's On a daily part. basis. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like all day, every day. Uh, Pretty you know, much. there's that portion <laughs> that I, I always utilize for um, coursework the autobiography in five short chapters. Uh, it's easy to look up if people have read it, but it just talks about falling in the hole in the sidewalk over and over again and how you learn that you're participating in this falling in the hole in the sidewalk until you can walk down another street. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we do it over and over. And it's like actually quite hilarious. I had uh, a student that I'm working with in one of my courses that said, I'm writing another, another chapter to that. And I think it should be, I walked down another street, then I ran back to the original street, threw myself in the hole in the sidewalk on purpose. Through <laughs> yeah. This whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, just pattern repetition after pattern. And some of that is not, you know, learning that that's predictable. And predictability is what equates to safety in our nervous systems. And that is the mm. oldest and smartest part of our nervous systems that has kept us alive and and perpetuating as a species forever. So to think we can outsmart it somehow in full is, I think, a fool's errand. But to understand it so much better is, wow, what a vital tool.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Good point, Alexandria. I'm curious because you've you've had this... Well, actually, so I have an understanding of like what time history we're talking about, but when would you say like you re- started practicing yoga? Like where are we going back to? What year?
1: Uh, so I was 20. So that's 98.
0: Nice. Uh, so you've seen like this sort of transition. Say if, mm-hmm. somebody, say if somebody is just like coming into class today, I've never done yoga before, and you want to um, just give them a little snapshot from your perspective of how it's evolved in that timeframe, well, how would you paint that picture? Like, what would that, how would you explain it to somebody who's brand new?
1: Well, tw- what's that tw- almost 24 years ago yeah. at this? Well, it, yeah, yeah, 24 years ago at this point. Um, the way that it used to be is you didn't know what you were going to get there. Uh, none of us really had a lot of understanding, like even imagery that we understood was yoga right except for maybe people sitting in lotus like otherwise you just didn't have this expectation around how it should look mm. or what would be taught or how it would be taught it was kind of like you went and the teacher had a lesson plan that they put together and you didn't really know why or what and you followed along with it and that was that um so it was really different because it the expectation of the student i feel like now is uh, that it's going to look a certain way that a certain things are going to be in there. And if they're not in there, it's not yoga. And I'm like, Oof, wow, that's not where I started at all. It's not even how I was taught to teach. Um, and so I would encourage you know, anyone, uh, anyone, frankly, but you know, if you're new, uh, try to put those expectations to the side because the form is not why the what the function is. Uh, the form is just how it looks and a tool towards the function. The function is something much much deeper. Um, try to listen for that part.
0: Yeah, good answer. Do you <clears throat> was there like a somewhere in the middle of all that? And I I know probably the obvious thing would be social media slash YouTube slash internet connectivity was mm-hmm. where there was this huge acceleration of um, seeing more and getting more imagery and more ideas. But um, how would you explain the snowball effect, that where, there, where that transition was and what, you've, what were your thoughts about how it evolved and shifted and started pushing more towards the demonstration of asana and, and the exclusivity of it?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean if we wanted to go like way back krishmacharya t- did demonstrations right and yeah. so there was a lot of imagery that was taken from those demonstrations back in what like the 60s 50s yeah. Yeah. um so there was that element to it um for sure and you know a mission of proliferating yoga as well so mm. we can go back that far
0: that's interesting
1: um yeah. i think uh from what Sociologist, she's in this is her area of study. It was actually Madonna being on the MTV yeah. M- Music Awards doing that performance um, when she was involved in Ashtanga. Uh, that was a huge proliferator of the imagery around yoga and this look. You know, her yoga arms were like this big component to it. And then there was the magazines and social media and, and traveling yoga teachers and this kind of like mm. celebrity ish component to it that really put it. Um, in this uh, visual centric kind of arena that it didn't have before. And a lot of that happened because it was coming out of Southern California and the two things were merging together. You know, there's this natural relationship between the yoga world and Hollywood because all of us taught that we were the private teachers of the community. So there was this kind of like merging together. Um, and then, you know, I think a huge amount with social media and a desire to, Offer yoga to more people. It's very difficult for people to explain what yoga is about without using imagery. I challenge people to do that all the time. I'm like, try to do it without mm. using pictures of bodies, mm. um, figure yeah. out new ways to do that. But I think uh, to th- there was just this natural kind of like, let's just use poses because it'll communicate that this is a thing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of tangible. So I think that that marketing component was a huge part of it. And then, you know, I mean, you've seen it. It's in everything from like Capital One commercials to like whatever. It's people doing Warrior Two all the time. I'm like and up to, I don't know why. Updog and Warrior Two always. I'm like, okay. I Those guess essential I suppose.
0: What do you I, I think what you're doing currently for for anyone that's uh, not familiar with your Instagram page, you're at Alexandria Crow Yoga. And you do a lot of posts where you'll use words. So I think one attempt to what I've noticed that you have uh, attempted to do to shift from here's me in a picture, here's a picture of me in a pose, here's a picture of me in a pose to uh, type out words um, to explain like what, what you're getting at. So I think that's actually a really smart way to do it. That seems pretty, that seems like it's working to convey a message mm-hmm. and um, do oh gosh, okay, let me just keep my train of thought going here. And so like I saw one today that was saying um, about down dog that down dog is like not comfortable for everybody. And so we are here like in the accessibility world, like be aware that if you just say child's pose is like, everyone just go to child's pose and relax in child's pose. And that's an assumption that that will be easy for everybody. Is there like a, a... a bigger meaning reason why you feel there's this real importance to point this out.
1: Well, I, my whole drive towards it was I, without knowing I can now label like my three guiding principles as a participant in this landscape, but I, um, was always driven by them. I just didn't have a label for them. And one was, I wanted to teach yoga, like yoga, yoga rooted in the teachings. I was really interested in that part. So as much as I could, I wanted to dive into what that meant. So I wasn't, you know, just teaching physicality. Then, um, I wanted to teach, you know, there's this set of messages that was given to me at the beginning, and I believed them, that yoga is for everyone, and it's a lifelong practice. And it turns out that the methodology didn't meet that moniker at all. So I tried to, I've spent years merging the physical with that message so that they meet, because I think that's a really commonplace set of ideas that people have, uh, is like, you know, this is for everyone, you see it all the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we say, but that's not how classes are formulated at all. So let's talk about it because, you know, we're all biased towards our own experience until we learn more. So if something's really comfortable for us, we make the assumption it's comfortable for everybody. Um, If we really like something, we assume other people will like it if they just give it a try, but that's not true at all. And it isn't, Something that you become aware of until somebody goes, Yeah, like, I really don't like that. It doesn't work for me. And what oftentimes happens in the yoga world is it's like, oh, well, y- it will, you just have to keep at it. And <laughs> you know, you can use this block or whatever, and but don't worry, it'll become comfortable. But that's not true. It's just not. So if we want yoga to be for everyone and we want them to get this depth of teaching and this depth of, you know, material that can be really helpful for people when it resonates. Then we have to teach in a way that the methodology allows them to get there and to access that. If you're in a class where you're told just keep at it and one day child's pose is going to become comfortable for you. Think of all the psychological oddities that Mm -hmm. happen from that. And one of the big ones in addition to the others is there's something wrong with me because this doesn't work for me. And yet the message of yoga is there's nothing wrong with you. The problem is you think there's something wrong with you. And then you've got all kinds of weird behavior that we all have <laughs> because you think there's something wrong with you. But if you can get back to that base place of you're okay, then all that kind of you know stuff that you've layered on top as coping mechanism and protective mechanism and defense and whatever it would shift maybe some, and you you could get back to not feeling, you know, broken or unwhole in some kind of way. So I think there's so much to, so much potential. I'm always like, I'm good for business, even though that's not really, you know, it's just kind of a joke I make is I'm like, people are teaching to such a small fraction of the population. And so many people feel unwelcome and we don't realize that they come and they never come back. We just, we and we don't see them right so you just think oh they whenever it doesn't register in your mind you see the people that are there and i'm like yeah but you don't realize how many have walked in the door and never come back because they felt excluded
0: mm. so yeah, that's why not yeah, yeah that's a good point yeah great point that's a good point my wife and i have we have a yoga studio we we have our 17 year anniversary coming up um at, at our studio next next week or next yeah next monday or um this publishes it would have been last monday but uh and uh we have like this like stack of all these people have come through and then sometimes i'll be looking like wow three people showed up today and but we've had this amount of people come through over the years and why so i i like the fact that you're saying that because it's getting me to think like oh that's actually a really good point because i mean i know obviously like so much there could be so many reasons like there could be a million and one reasons so to beat ourselves up that What did we do wrong? But I do, I do, I am noticing that the more I try to uh, take, bring the accessibility in that it, that it does feel better. Like it feels better. Like at least if they never do come back, I feel like the attempt feels good.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is like you said, we can't beat ourselves up. Like you're, you're not going to see yourself in every place you go or every setting or every, you know, experience, right? That not everything's going to resonate with every yeah. person. Yeah. So, yeah. and it can be something that's completely unchangeable and you would could never do anything about or you won't do anything about because it's just simply who you are and you're not going to, you know, <laughs> negotiate that point of yourself. But Yeah. There is this big component. You know, I think it's funny mm-hmm. when people say like, what's the number one reason people say they can't do yoga? I'm not flexible enough. Yeah, And then we say to them as a yoga community, oh no, 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 that's a misconception. And I'm like, no, what if you have said, this is what I choose to say. You're right. You're not right that you're not flexible enough to do yoga because yoga is not the poses, the poses are a means to an end, but you are correct that if you're not one of the 20% or under of people Mm -hmm. who are hypermobile, then even the basic poses are going to be outside of your range of motion reach, no matter how many days a week you go and how many years. So you're correct. You are to, uh, you don't have the quote unquote flexibility to do those poses, but guess what? It's not about those poses. So how about let's find a class for you that's adaptable. And that is on this road to, to teaching in a different way so that you know, and then you present, you know, this is what yoga is. Here's what the teachings are about. Does that sound of interest? And they're like, yeah, that part. I like that part. I'm like, okay, let's find you a class that teaches that part yeah. without you know, being left out because you're not hypermobile. Let's make it simple here. Yes. So I think that's such a huge opportunity and that's going to take time, right? Because we've got to, yeah. as a community, broadly rework the message that's been given to people over the last couple of decades which is gonna a lot of us working together um which is why i spark conversations the way that i do i think that's a huge thing is to say hey i think this way but if we want to change things and if this resonates with you then i need your help too like i can teach you how if you don't have the tools but i can't do it by myself so Mm -hmm. you know Important for all of us that are into that kind of idea and that think that has value to provide the alternative and to be really clear like, hey, we do things differently than the status quo right now. And the status quo is fine, but we're doing it this way, and here's why. And if that sounds good to you, maybe come here instead of there.
0: Great point. It seems like the entire like yoga world would benefit for the fact that people actually more people could actually practice, which would benefit everybody. On both sides right. of the coin, the teachers that are hoping that they'll be busy enough to support themselves the the students hoping that they can find a class that they aren't made fun of or made to feel inferior in. so it does mm-hmm. seem like good work. So then where are we getting where are we getting resistance? like it, it seems so obvious to me, so where is the resistance coming from? the tra- right, so the traditions t- like the the police a little bit but we- I think
1: there's loose it's looser um around that. Here's my theory so. Us human beings, like we talked about the clashes before, we have this pattern, um, you know, of anything that's become predictable and familiar becomes our norm. And in the yoga world, so much of what's become our norm is tied to really deep stuff, um, to money, to, you know, livelihood, to positioning in terms of like our status in some kind of way, shape or form. Um, And I'm just going to put this on the table because I've asked a lot of people and it seems to be a pattern that there's a lot of people in the yoga world who are perfectionists and people pleasers, and they don't want to do the wrong thing. And that's a protective mechanism. So when we needle in on, hey, there's something that isn't working. There's a way that we need to change this. It might mean admitting you are doing some things, you know, not wrong. I mean, it's only wrong when you're doing it and you know better, but it's just, you weren't, you know. But that's how they take it oftentimes It's they're doing something wrong. So then all the defense mechanisms come up, right? Because fear of death, like on a fundamental level, that change and that admission is, well, who would I be? Is everybody going to think I'm a fraud? What, I went through all of this. I remember it mm-hmm. really clearly. And I yeah. had no idea. So I think a lot of what it happens is someone's ability to do something physical or how they teach has gotten woven into their self-worth. And it needles at that.
0: Yeah. And so
1: but, it's
0: really yeah. uncomfortable. Yep. Great point. But there's
1: the yoga work, is Great. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, I'm like, that's the yoga right there. You're really uncomfortable because you don't want to change. You don't want to admit that something shifted. <sighs> yeah.
0: yeah. Great You're point. You're protecting it. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's the Klesha. There's that road. Yeah. I'm like, I like this road. I want to throw myself in the hole.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I know this hole. <laughs> yeah. I've been here.
0: <laughs> These holes are so comfortable. Yeah, that's a really good point. How do you? I mean, because you you get a ton of comments and likes on your posts. How do you navigate what to respond to, what not to, what like? How do you keep your energy feeling positive? um, When I mean, I don't know if I don't know what kind of comments you get. I don't like read all of them uh, because there's so many. But I mean, I'm sure that you're getting some like ugly comments or comments that aren't like easy to digest. Are you? Um, are your skin getting thicker? Are you just, my skin is much thicker, but I also don't get
1: nearly that kind of commentary. Like I did when I started talking about Mm, this sort of thing. Um, there's been a dramatic shift in the landscape as a whole over the last, you know, probably three, four or five years. Um it was much more difficult like 10 years ago, seven years ago. It was, it was rough. You know, people would find me and, um, you know, be pretty nasty sometimes about their position, but, and I would take some of it personally back then because I was like, I'm just trying to help and I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just trying to present a different vantage point that I didn't even know about. But nowadays it seems like people are more aware of that or they know that's what I'm up to. So they tend to kind of either you know, be similar in vantage point, or if they're different, they're willing to engage in conversation. And I, I'll always have a good faith conversation if people, if somebody wants to have one. Um, and that's kind of how I keep my yeah. spirits up. Like I'll I'll debate you if you want to have a good faith conversation, but if you're not open to hearing, you yeah. know, I'm putting my vantage point out. If you don't want to hear it, then you don't have to be here. Technically, yeah. I'm not. I don't have to engage you if you're not, you know, willing to listen.
0: That's good advice. I agree with that. That's cool. I can't Can, do you, um, I, I saw that you, you love comedy and that you're um, a big Dave Chappelle fan. Do you, um, did you see the new Chris Rock special that came out? Did. did you I like did. it? Did you think that was good? What, what are your thoughts on that one?
1: Uh, oh.
0: It wasn't my favorite. All right. Wow. I'm
1: not a actually. I'm kind of, uh, Neither here nor there about his particular comedy.
0: Okay.
1: Um it was okay. I thought there was parts that were funny and parts that weren't. I'm like a huge I've seen everything. So I'm pretty, you know, like so tough critic at this point. Like I much preferred, funnily enough, uh, have you seen Kathleen Manigan's new special on Prime? No. Oh my god. It's write that down. Oh so funny. Um Actually, all of her specials are really funny, but this new one is like, I've watched it a number of times and she actually works clean, which is not usually my speed, but, um, oh my gosh, it is really, Wait, what do you, really fun.
0: What do you mean by works clean?
1: Yeah. She doesn't, uh, no cursing. No. Oh, got it. Okay. Like okay, cool. Really.
0: At first I thought you know. meant like that meant she didn't like get drunk on stage while she did it, but then I, thought oh, no, she, I
1: think she does get drunk on stage. Okay, sure. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
0: Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah.
1: She, yeah, she's like friends with. She was she dated Lewis Black for a long time. She's friends with, Roy Wright, so she's kind of in that.
0: I'll definitely truth. check it out. I love stand up. Can where where do you try to insert comedy into your yoga, and/or do you think there's a place for comedy in yoga?
1: Um, I used to be like when I taught public classes years ago. I was that was kind of what I loved doing was making people laugh while doing that, and that's really changed actually because I have a strong desire to make sure that I'm facilitating an experience that's about the participants, not about me. I don't want to center myself or take the attention off of somebody's internal experience. So, but sometimes I can't help myself. I could just, you know, if I say something ridiculous, I'd have to turn it into a joke, but fortunately I I spend a, almost my entire time lecturing at this point. And um, I lecture on the same topics over and over and over again, year after year. So it's, Almost like doing a stand up routine in the mm-hmm. sense that I'm refining material and I've got lots of opportunities to make jokes and make things light and entertaining because I'm trying to keep people's attention for like three hours at a clip sometimes online where they're just staring at my head on a flat screen. So it's like, okay, how am I going to make this interesting? So I think people resonate with jokes and humor and keeping things light when it's so heavy all the time. Um, That's not how life is. And that's not how people really learn through and through. That's kind of how you can get people to beat themselves up, I suppose. But I really like to make things kind of light at times and make a joke of them. I do a lot of very irreverent things when I teach philosophy. Like I teach Patanjali like he's Larry David sometimes (laughs) because... Uh, he just seems so and because it's not a q and a book you know the the Gita's question and answer right it's a kind of a conversation that's happening and potentially having a one sided conversation but if you realize that he's actually having a dialogue and that's how it progresses I do it like he's having this very curmudgeonly dialogue because he's like, Really? You don't like that meditation technique? Well come up this <laughs> seriously, not that one. And eventually he gets to like just pick something, pick anything you find, find that was workable. Just pick something. And it's you know, so I think there's lots of room. For that kind of thing, while also having you know a deep respect and understanding and historical placements and uh, you know cultural respect for the texts and yes. the teachings, but yes. I like to keep things light sometimes and make them funny. This have to be so darn serious all the time.
0: That's cool. I agree. Do if if you were to take chaturanga, what are some of the myths that you think are around chaturanga in relation to anatomy and or alignment?
1: Like, for example, like,
0: like hug your elbows into the side of your rib cage. Uh, Yes or no?
1: uh, If you have your hands placed (laughs) properly. Okay. (laughs) So if you don't, hugging your elbows in will negate the carrying angle structure of your arms and will then cause your shoulder blade to elevate, um, which will make it look like your shoulder heads are quote-unquote dropping from the side when the teacher's observing it from the front. It'll make you look all hunchy, but that's because of the placement of your hands and that adduction of your shoulder joint that that goes with, you know, cause it to like adduct immediately rotate, which goes with elevation. So if you want your elbows to hug into the sides, fine, but place your hands in such a way that that it, it, that happens naturally without mm. you having to mm. manufacture.
0: Interesting. So like a narrower hand position,
1: wider and angled,
0: wider and angled. In
1: general uh, People Why? have about fifteen degrees of carrying angle per arm. So um, that'll mean that their elbows can be shoulder distance, but their hands in general will be depending on how many degrees of carrying angle, a number of degrees wider on each side. So they have to be wider and then, uh, can do it for you you're on camera so i can do this if anybody wants to see it there's a free lesson on my page or you can come take <laughs> one of my courses but if i'm here the natural trajectory for my elbows is going to be side like this right mm-hmm. if i want mine to my upper arms to graze my sides i need to
0: yes that makes sense perfect sense yeah anyone that's just listening if you want to see what you just did this will be on youtube so um it's there that's cool. Alexandria. What about, um, so like being a Ashtanga person and then hearing people say like, "Oh, I have this pain, like right at the front of the shoulder. So often it seems like, like the long head of the biceps at the infraglenoid tubercle strain, but really? basically front of the shoulder area. Mm-hmm. Um, What's classic advice that you would give somebody to just kind of get them to think differently? Like maybe, maybe just don't even do chaturanga. Maybe try a completely different practice. Or do you try to? I mean, I know you could go any different angle, but what are some different thoughts that you have around this like fascination with jumping into chaturanga, dog down, dog? Um,
1: this, this push up that is like the yeah, you'd think for sure push up. <laughs> the most magical thing in the whole world in the yoga world. I totally get it. I've been there. I know. I I always laugh like this is side note. I remember getting into like a really heated debate at one point over whether uh, the jump from down dog to Ardha Uttanasana was an inhale or an exhale. Okay. So I've been there. I know the amount of minutiae we can all get obsessed with, but for that, if somebody has shoulder pain, the first thing is, okay, like can we, can we not do the thing that's aggravating it? And that could mean not doing it at all, altering it a bunch in terms of how far you go into it. But the first place I'd start is like, reposition your hands. So <laughs> we start there, um, because I it just, is such a fascination with this pose and there's so many workshops and all this about chaturanga. And every time I watch a video of people doing these like breakdowns, I'm like, move the person's hands. You're futzing with their shoulder, but if you moved their hands, it would stop doing that weird thing. So it doesn't mean that everyone's strong enough to kind of hold that position or to go down to, you know, a 90 degree bend or elbow or to even get on the floor to hold the weight on their wrists. Like there's all kinds of, you know, compounding factors that make this inaccessible, but if someone's shoulder is hurting, I'll tell a story that makes this carrying angle knowledge. relevant. Really so I had a, a person who took uh, apparently a workshop with me before and then came to another workshop where I was yeah. teaching the same material. And he came up at the end and he said, I have one arm that has about five degrees of carrying angle and another that has about 25. So he's got his above average one and above low average one. And he said, and I realized in your initial workshop that I was placing both of my hands, kind of that shoulder distance apart, wrist creases parallel to the front of the mat placement. And my arm that only has about five degrees of carrying angle, the shoulder on that side is totally fine. No problem with it. The other arm, my shoulder, I had like rotator cuff issues and all kinds of things. He's like, so since I took that workshop, I now place my hands asymmetrically. One is wider and angled out and my shoulder pain went away. Mm. Now that's not going to solve it for everyone, but there's this skeletal component, this individual skeletal makeup thing that needs to be accounted for when you're fixing your hands to a place and moving, you know, multiple joints around that fixed structure. So I'm like, okay, well, we could try that. Let's move your hands and see if that alleviates it. Or let's not go down into the push-up. Let's hold plank. Or let's do it on your back without weight-bearing so that, you know, you can do all kinds of things laying down that replicate a lot of the same yeah. feeling, especially if you imagine that you're holding the ceiling up with your arms when you're laying down. You Good know, you point. can get a lot of the resistance. So cool. there's lots of ways to go about it. But I'd be like, if you're hurting your shoulder, let's talk about non-harm, shall we? Uh, because <laughs> yeah. the pain in the shoulder is not going to be worth enduring like what do you what do you think is going to happen from hurting yourself here cuz it's not going to get you what you think it's going to get except for more pain
0: great answer i like the fact that the idea that there's this fascination with symmetry but mm. by allowing for asymmetry would solve or at least reduce pain which to me seems like so important right now like cuz I keep putting myself in pain every day, just in the name of a yoga practice, it's just after so many years you go, what am I even doing? So, so that's yeah. kind of, cool. I like the, um, I like that idea of just like, it's okay if you're asymmetrical.
1: <laughs> We're all asymmetrical. It's the funniest fascination in the yoga world. Being a gymnast, we don't have that fascination mm. at all because mm. you have a good leg and you have a bad leg and it mm. doesn't mean like one's work of the one's just your favored side so all yeah. your tricks are done on that side all you don't tricks. learn how to do any of the other things on your other side and you even have a like leap leg and you only really learn how to do leaps and splits on that leg you do splits as yes, you know warm up on both sides but you're not nearly as concerned with getting them both you know equal yeah, yeah. um so the yoga world's like very, very strange in that. And you, you know, you don't even have it in any other sport. You don't, a uh, 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 what's it called?
0: Baseball? Hitter that no. Both, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. baseball.
1: But when <laughs> they can hit, um, both ways, that like ambidextrous? A, Oh yeah. But they have a name right in baseball where you can, uh, oh, you're a, oh. you're a switch, hitter. switch hitter,
0: uh, you know, yeah, where
1: they can hit from both sides of the base. Like that's pretty rare. Right. And, you know, even a pitcher that can throw with both arms, it's like almost yeah. not heard yeah. of. Good so, point. The yoga world's kind of funny with that, and you're not asymmetric. You're not symmetrical internally, even. Mm. So I don't, you'd have to go back and live your whole life on oh. the opposing side in the exact same way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> symmetrical. Oh my gosh! Like in, if there was reincarnation, you come back the other, you know, flipped over <laughs> yeah, the other. Yeah. Oh god. It's just a
1: cycle of you that, that it, right? Just right. <laughs> oh,
0: jeez, yeah, it feels like that sometimes. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> that's so cool, Alexandria. I um. I mean, I, I want to stay respectful of your time and I know we're kind of getting close oh, to the hour mark and I'm like, um, well, don't worry. another, I, don't I know this is to- to- totally off yoga topic, but okay. if you had to vote between two, these two things, um, mm-hmm. pizza or mac and cheese, I know the answer, but what would it be?
1: <laughs> that is so not fair. Uh, <laughs> mac and cheese, but only if it, I made it.
0: <laughs> oh, there you go. I thought your, 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 uh, fascination with mac and cheese is awesome. Cause I, I think that even like poses a really interesting idea too, because there's this like whole diet thing in yoga of like along the lines of symmetry that good yogi equals this kind of diet equals now you're good. Like now you're, you're, you know, going to get there. And so like, just that you're like owning mac and cheese the way you do, um, kind of cool. Yeah, Don't you cake. think that's important? <laughs> <laughs> What what do you see? Yeah. What what do you see in the yoga world with food and stuff like that? Is that getting better? Do you feel like some of? Do you see like a increase toward um, yogic discipline supporting uh, food? Um, to, like sorry, um, but like like our our the way we see our bodies and like having it to be perfect and making our diet trying to be this perfect situation. What what are you seeing? What do you feel?
1: Um. I try not to stay. I try to stay out of that lane, somewhat in terms of like.
0: I know it's a really. I'll
1: talk about it. I just mean I don't dabble in it enough to know what the landscape is in total at this moment. But I definitely know that there is this kind of idea that there's a prescribed diet, and that's just completely. You know, culturally misguided and misguided in general. It's just not, it's not ever been the way that it is. Um, It's a very individual thing. And if, you know, people are familiar with the Gita, they'd be very familiar with the section that talks about the gunas and food and that it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, So, it's a very, very individual thing. Um, and what could be really healthy for one person can be completely detrimental to another. Like I have a bunch of allergies. That would mean that most of the ways that people think, you know, you're supposed to eat would actually like put me in great harm. So I can't actually participate that way in a healthy fashion and pe- everybody's, you know, m- metabolism and ability to process things is really different. And I always get down to this idea of like, perfect. I'm like, says who? Who's creating the baseline metric for what's perfect? Because that assumes there's some kind of bar that's universally applicable. And that's just not the way that things work in this world. So um I, th- I completely honor the way anybody wants to eat if it works for them. I have no... Ab- I have no place having an opinion on what yeah. somebody else is doing yeah. if it works for them and even if it doesn't I it's not my business it yeah. is none of my business how somebody else eats um so that's what I kind of wish people would get into is like yeah it's not really your business what somebody's putting in their body if it works for them or not like they have to come to the, their own conclusions you can offer guidance and like what may be useful but it's a really personal journey to figure out what works for you. And, and that goes for everything, not just food.
0: I remember one time taking a class where the teacher walked in and kind of someone in here ate meat, you know, oh, and uh, right. And, um, you know, I was like, like yeah, really? just cause there's a heaviness with that, like where you're, you're like on a spot. There's like, you feel like, is there like some sort of spotlight coming in to like, start to pick me apart. And, you know, um, that's definitely something that, I think if, if we evolved a little past that, yoga would be a better place.
1: I agree. I yeah. agree. Um, I don't think that that's, you, you want to talk about like creating a really weird power dynamic in a, in a setting. Um, and you know, like I was saying before, I'll use myself as an example. I'm allergic to nuts and wheat and soy, um, And coconut is, you know, like tree nuts, all of them. So it makes that kind of idea really difficult. And I've tried all kinds of different things, but my body actually thrives really well on a pretty, you know, pretty specific like set of things. I'm not terribly concerned about what I eat. Like, you know, I don't really overthink it in that way, but, you know, I can't get away with not eating animal protein. I get sick and I have so few options and it's really privileged, honestly, to say, you know, you should eat a certain way like that. It be that became very obvious, having lived in Toronto and uh, l a and San Francisco. But then traveling places when you have a really specific dietary need or like lane that you're trying to stay in, good luck. Like that's almost impossible in certain settings, unless you're going to travel with a cooler and like (laughs) for a week, you can't bring all your food on the road. And then you're expecting the people in those locales to somehow attain or like to even engage with some kind of dietary um, system that is, you know, available in LA because they happen to have all that kind of thing for, you know, one reason or the other, but it's just not really reasonable in their, are sitting, they're setting in city. And so then what does it say? Like you're saying that they're not morally sound or making good decisions. Like that doesn't seem, it seems like a vast amount of privilege and judgment. That's probably not yet really very useful.
0: Good point. I remember being at a uh, workshop and then going out to lunch and, and I was like hungry. So I got something to eat and the person said, oh, but you're a yogi. You, you don't need to eat. And I, and I just, I just thought, oh, man, that's another really strict standard to hold me to. Like.
1: Honestly. Oh <laughs> and and, and uh, I do not begrudge anyone. It's, if anyone's listening to this and you're one of these people that have done this to me, I do not hold you in any ill regard. And I actually find it very funny. But um, when I w- was traveling, like every weekend, oftentimes the, you know, they want to, the studio owner wanted to go out to dinner or the, you know, there'd be like a group dinner or something. And more often than not, they'd want to take me to the vegan restaurant. And I'd chuckle. Cause I'm like, I'm actually not even allowed in these. Cause I have a <laughs> nut allergy and it usually says on the menu, like if you have a nut allergy, like basically get out. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, can, I can't really make this work, but it's okay. We can go here and I'll just get something later. It's no big deal. But um, they were always like, oh, oh, really? And I'm like, well, here's why. And I'm like,
0: yeah. oh my gosh, I yeah. never even
1: yeah. Yeah. So, and don't eat. My goodness. That's like the don't drink water. <laughs> don't, water. Yeah. Like don't sweat a pound and a half of sweat out, but don't you dare touch that water bottle. I'm like, in what yeah. other setting yeah. would you ever tell a person who is dehydrated To not drink water. (laughs) I get the idea. Like it was this aesthetic practice of, you know, discomfort and whatever. I'm like, yeah, except you're telling your body to overcome a fight, flight, freeze mechanism that is telling it it's dying and it in water is vital for survival. And so, you know, what are you really experimenting with, especially if you don't have the understanding of all that. And then as soon as that system kicks on, now you're in coping mechanism city and your you know prefrontal cortex like offline and everything it's just not a great place to be so i'm like oh it's such a weird set of things we say in the yoga world and i you know we all have said ridiculous things and not inspected them myself included but
0: i i hear ya i hear you i another one i heard recently was um maybe we should be careful about saying where are a yogi or yogini Maybe mm-hmm. we should say, I'm a yoga practitioner or a yoga teacher. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that kind of debate about? Because I guess the idea is that if I say like, oh, because I went and did one yoga class, I'm a yogi, that that devalues right. the tradition of something that has this really deep historical and, you know, um, practices. So th- then if I, you know, what do, what do you what do you think about that? Um,
1: I do, I have a funny thing with those words just cause they don't, they don't have historical context. So it's yogin, right? Um, really. Uh, and so I never felt, I mean, I don't begrudge people who call themselves that, but it's just not something I've ever used. I don't yeah. call people yogis or yoginis and I don't call myself that. Um, but, but, you know, I would always kind of encourage people to look at like the text called practitioners of yoga is like people that live by that yogans or you know of the sadhu tradition Yeah. So, yep. um, but i I just call myself a student of yoga and a teacher of cool. yoga
0: that makes sense that seems to cover the bases <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm a
1: student of it i'm trying to interact with this material and understand it better and better that's it and then trying to teach people the parts of it that i do understand from where i understand it right now
0: You have a lot of learning opportunities that we can join in with you on via online. Uh, you made mention that around about the time that this is being published, that you'll have a course coming out about philosophy and, and that you're striving or aiming in the direction of covering some of the philosophical components that maybe aren't covered in a yoga teacher training. Can you talk a little bit about what you hope to cover during that course?
1: Yeah. So that course is called yoga student training, um, so it'll reopen. It's been going on for a few years now. Um, and one of the things from all the travel that I did and asking all the groups that I worked with a bunch of questions over and over to kind of get a baseline pattern of what was happening was what their experience was with certain kind of classical teachings and texts and um. What I learned was that my experience in teacher training and subsequent experience after that was really different than the norm that I'd been exposed to all of that in their entirety. And there was a lot of deep diving into that, a lot of community interest in it. I, you know, sat through those lectures over and over and over again. Uh, but by and large, what people get in teacher training is like barely any investigation of the, the sutras or the Gita or, or any of the other subsequent texts. And, um, that's really hard to teach yoga that's rooted in the teachings and to really know what you're teaching and why you're teaching it. So you can formulate the how really wisely. Um, and I, you know, there's oftentimes a little dabble here or there, but not the totality of the, of the text. So, um, there's that. And then there's people who, you know, signed up for teacher training, who were hoping to learn what yoga was about. And they learned how to teach the poses, but they never learned why. So there's this really deep desire to learn um, these teachings. So the course is a, this year-long deep dive into both those texts, and we actually make nice. our way through both of them three times over by the end in their th- and it's combined with a practice component so not only is there lecture and group discussion every month but there's also practice and you get to engage with the teachings in real time in a really kind of different way than people are used to um that's really founded on investigating one's relationship to the philosophical teachings in real time um that then translates to you know daily life so yeah that course has been really really fun to teach for the last couple of years the the uh transformation and understanding from beginning to end is more remarkable than I could have ever hoped. People just have a really good grasp on those on those texts, at least from like a, you know, I know where I sit in relation to them now. I know how much more I have to learn, but I've got a grasp on these concepts and I know what I'm trying to do in a practice now and why, um, and how this could apply to my daily life. And that's just really pretty cool to see. And it ends up seeping into people's teachings by accident as well. So it's called student training, but it's actually <laughs> mostly populated by teachers usually. And yeah, everybody's welcome.
0: That sounds amazing. I want to join.
1: That's a really fun one.
0: What is an example of a daily practice exercise that you would associate or put in with the study of the Bhagavad Gita?
1: So it's not as specific as like a single teaching. That's I, I actually take like all the concepts in their totality and ask people to kind of investigate them in real time. But um For example, if I'm doing one, I I teach a lot of times a compare and contrast between the model people are used to and the actuality of you know how a certain pose might work Um, if you were to look at it from a mechanically sound standpoint and within a reasonable range of motion. So we do all kinds of investigation of different joint positions and movements and, you know, building blocks of certain poses, but they don't have an understanding of what pose we're doing yet. I'm building it without Mm. their expectations getting in the way. Mm. So they'll create, you know, their version, let's say very simply of Tadasana, but they'll have no idea it's Tadasana yet because they're just investigating it from all these qualities of experience. And then I'll label it and say, Tadasana but their feet aren't in the place that they usually put them and their, you know, arms aren't where they usually put them. And, you know, it's all different. And I'm like, and they get all like, oh, and the glaciers come online and here we go. And I'll say, okay, go ahead, do it the way that you usually do it. Okay. Now how about see if you can get out of that habit and back into investigating it in real time. And sometimes they can, and sometimes they're trapped in that old position. And they, you know, if they feel all of this attachment coming up and, you know, sometimes people say i one participant say last week she was like, "I was so angry at you, the first practice because <laughs> I wanted it to be a certain thing. and you were teaching yeah. a, a different thing. She's like, and it was so funny to watch me like arguing with you in my head about how things should be. And she's like, and now what I realize is, those were all my expectations and all of my preconceived notions. And I was uncomfortable with things being a little bit different. She's like, and now I don't look at it that way. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I just show up and I know I can do whatever I want and I can turn my camera on or off and I don't have to do what you say. But I choose to actually follow along with you pretty often at this point because you know, it's, I'm, I'm willing to show up for something a little bit different. I don't have those expectations of it having to look a certain way. And that's a looseness and a difference. And there's a real depth to it. It's just like, I'm investigating, you know, not just how my muscles fire, but this internal experience. Um, And, you know, people say things like that. And that's really cool that that's, there's the philosophy happening, like in real time, right from the lesson and translating to their life. So that's kind of how practice
0: works. Very cool. Can I ask you one more question? First. Um, you made mention that the challenge that you uh, saw, say, like 10 years ago when you started to bring up these different ideas, like, hey, maybe we could make it more accessible or let's look at this or like, let's examine that and that it's getting easier. So you're seeing like the fruit of your work and or, you know, other people joining in and helping to build that community around that. So what is your vision for what you dream of even beyond, or maybe it doesn't need to go beyond, but what is your vision for what you'd really like to see? Like if you could really, really shake things up.
1: I could wave a wand and have the world that I want. That yeah. is totally yeah. into this is what yeah, j- Just meant. for fun. Like I
0: know, I know it's dreamy <laughs> and fantasy <laughs> world, but like.
1: <laughs> My world. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I actually, you know, the, place I actually like legitimately aim at without with looseness, knowing it'll never work the way I want it to, um, or things don't happen the way you want them to, is that I would like to normalize classes that are accessible and um allow for people to investigate these teachings through physicality, through their bodies, but in a way that doesn't necessarily utilize the poses people are familiar with in the way that they're familiar with. It can, but it doesn't have to, it's really loose and open kind of a return to that, you know, here you're showing up this day and you're going to go on a ride with the teacher and, and, you know, interact with the narration that they're creating that day. um, And you get to make choices around the story that they're presenting to you. Um, And I'm, I'm not aiming to eliminate those physically demanding flashy classes I just would like the public to understand those aren't better than a class that isn't that or in a class that, you know, does physical demand in a different way or is, you know, quieter or gentler that there's actually um, yoga is not measurable from an external physical standpoint. One's um, understanding and ability to integrate it in their life is, is an internal job. Um, and I would just like that to be the norm that people understand. So when they look at a schedule, they pick, the class that resonates with where they are with yoga, not where they are with pose accomplishment. And for that to really be like a clear message that people have.
0: Great answer. That, that actually seems achievable too. Like that wasn't, right? that wasn't that, too right? fantasy orientated. That seems. It seems uh, like a return. It seems right? grounded. Yeah. Yeah. It seems
1: like a return to the norm. Yeah. Like of yeah. what? Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing right now, right? I've always joking with people. and like, there's no better time to teach yoga because there's the most novel thing you can teach right now is like a yoga class from 20 years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. That's actually makes me feel good. I mean, that takes pressure off. Ah, oh, you know Dang what I mean? It. Like, <laughs>
1: Well, I'm like, God, so I can relax.
0: Enough. I can just relax.
1: Yeah. Yeah. i'm like people just want simple things that help them to have <laughs> yeah. a moment with themselves, yeah. you know, even if that yeah. moment's uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, you know, internally yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I have a friend in Salt Lake City that owns a studio there. So Steve is this is a shout-out for him that he's a social worker and a therapist and um has this really great safe space yoga studio and therapy um practice. And he said, you know, this whole thing about people wanting to leave class feeling better and feeling happy. This whole pressure that we have around that. He's like, I, that's, I really wish that would stop. He's like, that's not realistic. From a, my therapist standpoint, that's not realistic. He's like, you might come in pissed and you might leave knowing you're pissed, but at least that's real. And it's acknowledging what's happening in the present. And you're actually with what's going on rather than avoiding it or perpetuating it. And isn't that what it's all about? Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's, that's why we're friends. That's why we're on the same page right there. So, (laughs) you know, I wish that that was kind of like how the teacher mindset was is your job isn't to entertain people or to make them happy. Your job is to teach a yoga class that's rooted in yoga and it can be really simple and it can be, you know, very inclusive and very accessible for people. And that might not be the one that has 200 people in it, but that's a really different place to be. That 200 person one is an entertainment show and uh, that's a different kind of there's a clinging and a process yeah. to that as well. There's like a whole thing around it. So don't think that that comes with some kind of liberation or some kind of ease. That's like a whole other animal to wrestle with. So why not go with you know something that feels really you know true to you and really rich to you? You know even if it's the one that has you know ten people in it, um, but they keep coming back and they keep liking what they're doing and you see them understanding what you're talking yeah. about. Like yeah. has a lot of value to it.
0: Very cool, Alexandria. I'm so thankful for you to do this with me. I respect your work greatly. When I wake up in the morning, I get a chance to look at social media. I, I look for. I hope she posted something because I always feel like they're just really honest and real conversations. So, um, thank you. Thank you. Keep keep lot. going. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, keep going wow. with it. It's amazing. So. And then, you know, just, just to be down to earth and accept my invitation to do this. And, you know, I, that's really cool, you know, so I really appreciate that. You know, thank you so much. You know it. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be a next time. I'll reach out to you. (laughs) I'm
1: around anytime.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Alexandria. I appreciate it. Of course. All right. Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review, and join us next time.